We are live. <clears throat> Welcome to Forward Guidance Live. A lot to talk about. You know, people are talking about SWIFT. People are talking about sanctions on, on Rus Russian banks. And I don't think a lot of people know what's going on. I definitely know what's going on. But today I have two people who do, uh, and they are Francis Coppola and Joseph Wang. Francis and Joseph, before guys. Uh, uh, Francis, you are someone who you've been working in the plumbing uh, of the monetary system. You have a lot of experience. You, you know, were involved with uh, 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 sanctions on Kuwait um, back in the day. You, you, you've been studying SWIFT for, for a long time. Can you just start and tell us um, what is going going on with SWIFT? And then what are some in uh, what are some misconceptions that people have about SWIFT? Because I'm someone, you know, Francis, I, I'm maybe like your typical consumer of financial news where I see, oh, SWIFT is doing this, they're, they're doing sanctions against that. But what is actually happening? Well, SWIFT is um, often touted as a payment system, but actually it's a messaging system. Um, it's the means that banks use to send messages to each other, things like, transfer requests and payment instructions and confirmations and notifications, those kinds of things. So it, when a bank is making a payment, it's going to send, send to another bank a message saying some, something along the lines of, I'm going to send you some money. This is who it's from because you need to know who the customer is for your um, know your customer rules. And this is this is where you need to put it. Um, and then the bank will, the other bank will send them another message back saying, yeah, I got the message. I'll look out for the money. And then the money actually comes via the central bank or by the via the correspondent banking network, but the um, instructions come via SWIFT, and without those instructions, it's very hard for banks to um, transfer money to and from each other because the banks don't know where to put it or what to do with it, and that's why SWIFT is so crucial to the payments network. But I think the misunderstanding that people get into is in thinking that it's actually make, actually transferring money, because it isn't. So it is actually possible for banks to transfer money to each other without using SWIFT. Back in the day, before we had SWIFT, I mean, I'd go on a wild ride back to about 1973, um, they used to send instructions by telex. Um, I guess the modern equivalent would probably be kind of email. <laughs> Fact. Um, something like that. So not having SWIFT would kind of return them to the dark ages, really, but it wouldn't be impossible for them to make payments, as has been suggested. There would be workarounds. And actually, one of the most important workarounds um, in the present situation is the fact that both Russia and China have created what we might call fledgling alternatives to SWIFT that haven't gained a great deal of traction so far. But if um, all of the Russian banks were banned from SWIFT, we might find that those alternatives suddenly became very important. Mm. And uh, why is it, do you think, that this, this, talking about um, SWIFT, it has been talked about in the terms of, oh, you know, as, as if it is a banking payment rail and not a messaging layer. So like, let's say, for example, that you know, I was JP Morgan and Joseph was uh, Sparebank, which has been caught up in the uh, uh, sanction of SWIFT. So you're saying I could still send him money. He could still send me rubles. I could still send him dollars. But we just couldn't use sort of the email service that international banks use. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, well, if the sanction is only SWIFT, 
then yes, you'd still be able to send money. Um, you just would have to, like I said, send each other faxes or something like that. The additional complication in this, though, is actually the sanctions that the United States has put in place, um, which actually affect the transmission of money. Um, now, they did this uh, at the time. There was a huge furore about SWIFT blowing up, saying, oh, we, we need to block Russia from SWIFT. And the, um, America came out and said, well, actually, we're going to knock most of Russia's banks out of the dollar clearing system. And everybody went, oh, that's not very good, is it? Shouldn't you be doing SWIFT? And said, no, actually, knocking them out of the dollar clearing system is way more effective because then they just can't transmit money. And, you know, if you can, if you've got access to SWIFT, you can send a message. But if you can't send the money, it's not much use, is it? So actually, the the US is blocking sanctions on uh, banks like VTB are on the face of it, way more effective. There is a caveat on that, which I think we'll be discussing quite a bit, which is the fact that two banks in particular, Spurbank and Gazprom Bank, have been excluded from the blocking sanctions. Spurbank is Russia's biggest bank and Gazprom Bank, as its name suggests, is crucially involved in the um, in energy transactions, particularly gas. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? This is those two banks that have been excluded from the blocking sanctions that would prevent um, um, them from making or receiving dollar payments at all. Um, Spurbank has been banned from the dollar clearing system for most payments, but there is a carve out for certain types of payments, one of which is energy payments. So this is all about keeping the money flowing, the dollars flowing for things that the Americans considers crucial. There are one or two other carve outs as well to do with financial stability. So, for example, derivatives. And that's so that we don't suddenly get unwinding of derivatives positions and escalating margin calls like we had in 2008. I can step back and give a little bit of color on something like this, what Francis is talking about. So back to your illustration, whenever there's a dollar payment, ultimately it has to go through the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. So the Fed holds everyone's reserves accounts, right? So when you're paying me, ultimately someone's bank is transferring reserves from one bank to another. That happens on the Fed's balance sheet. And because the Fed has control over that, they can shut anyone out. And those are the sanctions that Francis is talking about. But of course, if we, let's say if, the Fed shut me out, then even if you could message me, I wouldn't be able to make that payment. So to Francis' point, and uh, Jamie Dimon was also making the same point, SWIFT is just a messaging system. There's a lot of ways around it. The ultimate sanction is just shutting out dollar clearing, like Francis mentioned. But of course, they don't want to hurt themselves. So that's <laughs> why there's so many caveats. And yeah, Joseph, can you help us understand the plumbing a little bit? So let's say you are spare bank and you have a lot of dollar denominated assets. How is it that you are blocked off from, from not being able to, to lose it? For example, you know, spare bank, the equity of the actual company, the uh, American depository receipt has been down about 90% over the past month. Uh, so it, this really has damaged at least the stock price, but can you explain the mechanics a little bit? So you're saying yeah. that ultimately when it has an asset on its balance sheet that's denominated in dollars, ultimately the Federal Reserve is in control of that or it's not? I thought I thought we so had the whole euro dollar system, right? If Spearman had dollars, they would actually hold it. Let's say you're JP Morgan. It would hold it as a deposit at JP Morgan. And so when it wants to make a payment, it'll say, hey, JP Morgan, can you pay someone else for me? 
And here's when the sanctions would come in. The Fed would say, no, you can't do that. This is uh, someone we don't want to deal with. And so that's shut off. Even if you were sending payment instructions by, let's say, Pigeon or by tweet <laughs> or by text, it wouldn't matter because you wouldn't be able to make the payment there. Mm. And yeah, uh, Francis, uh, sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, actually, it's 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 more draconian even that because the sanctions actually say that the correspondent banks, so JP Morgan in this case, have actually got to close the account. Wow, that's a nuclear option there. Mm. No dollars for anyone there. They've got 30 days to close it. Mm. Wow. And, and Francis, let's just hone in on a key point you said, which is that the Treasury, I believe on 24th of February, uh, issued this sanction freezing a lot of Russian banks and in the top of the uh, of the release the press release the, the the order it said we are banning Sparebank we are banning VTB that is 70% of the assets and we're also banning all these other assets but then at the bottom there were some exclusions so you're you can still export oil uh, you can still export other things so so it, it you know, the sanctions apply to things like Russian dolls, but to things that, you know, are, are very important to the uh, European and American economy, like oil, uh, they are not yet in place, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, there are specific exclusions from the from the United States sanctions, and it looks as if the European Union and the UK are, mir are mirroring those exclusions in their own sanctions packages as well. So, um there are is a list of about seven types of transaction that won't be included in the sanctions. And one of those is energy. Um, I think I've mentioned derivatives as well. Um, agriculture is another one. Um, humanitarian aid and things related to COVID. So it, it, it is all to do with um, making sure that things that are really, really necessary don't get sanctioned. So it's kind of understandable. Um, but we should be aware that that having sort of carve outs like this for certain types of things, particularly when it's affecting a, a part of the the of Russia's economy that's as vital as energy, um, does weaken the effect of the sanctions a bit. Okay, so we've got SWIFT, which, which by the way, there's a persistent theme in this, Francis, is that people who are uh, forward facing, let's call them prime ministers, let's call them chancellors, let's call them presidents, they like to make pronouncements about things that they like to uh, like seem that they have control over. But in some cases, they don't. I'll give you an example. SWIFT, everyone's like, oh, the US dollar. SWIFT is the dollar, and the US runs the dollar. But it's not like Joe Biden runs the dollar, right? You know, SWIFT, as you say, it has uh, 11,000 member banks, which collectively own SWIFT. And if I was trying, I was you know, pouring through the press releases of SWIFT today, and they had the most uh, uh, you know, milk toast polite statement saying we are talking to our partners and we are deciding what you know all of this boldness that perhaps you could hear from you know prime minister boris johnson and other other folks they really don't have control over that right and and you know we can talk about swift but then we also can talk about the the central banks right yeah absolutely i mean swift is swift is not only a private organization it's not even like a joint stock corporation it's a cooperative it's owned by its eleven thousand member banks and some, of course, some of its 11,000 member banks that own it are, of course, Russian banks. So there's a, quite a bit of negotiation going along on within SWIFT. 
to, to get these sanctions um, implemented. It's not straightforward. And I, I think politicians have rather presented this as being, oh, we can just do this. But it isn't that simple. And it's rather similar with some of the other sanctions as well, um, that, that actually it isn't just a question of switching a sanction on or you know, flipping a switch, as somebody put it, not for any of these sanctions. I think I've already mentioned that the US sanctions, there's a 30-day implementation period. And that means that during that time, um, the, the business is going to continue during that time because you can't, they've got to unwind their positions. Banks have got to get in additional liquidity to cover the liquidity that they're not going to get from Russian banks in, in um, after the closure of the correspondent banking accounts and the blocking freezing of the assets, all that kind of thing has got to be covered. So they've given a time lag to allow that to be done. There's a similar time lag in, in, in London's sanctions as well. And when we come to central banks, you know, this, this, very, this, this um, famous um, freezing of the assets of the Russian central bank, um, that hasn't happened yet. And it's not clear if it can happen at all. <laughs> um, because... Um, it, it all depends what these assets are and, and where they are, because um, you've, if you've got that chart, um, Jack, yes, on, I do. on the competition of the of the um, Russian Central Bank's reserves, because I think it'd be quite interesting to look at this and see what it's made up of and where these things are. Here we go. Yeah. On the, the chart on the left. The chart on the left, indeed, because if you actually look at this, you can see that a fairly substantial proportion of it is gold. Now, that we're fairly sure is in Russia and under the Russian Central Bank's control. Then there are deposits held abroad and there are deposits with central banks and the IMF and BIS. And then there's a huge watch of securities. Now, um, of those, the sanctions that would be applied really would apply to the green and grey. So about a third of the balance sheet. That's deposits with central banks, IMF and BIS, and other deposits held abroad. Those tend to be on bank balance sheets, so the kind of things that would be subject to sanctions. Securities are much more tricky um, because it depends where they're custodied and whether the custodian is subject to sanctions, and we don't know. Um, so at, at a minimum, it would be those two categories. Um, but... It's this, but their central banks are holding some of the Bank of Russia's foreign assets. And we don't know exactly which central banks those are, but we're fairly sure that it includes the Bank of England and the ECB. Um, so it, it, what is interesting here is that um, politicians are announcing a sanction against a central bank, which would involve um, their central banks doing what they're told. These are meant to be independent central banks. I think, was thinking about this and thinking, you know, I reckon central banks are in on this. I think this has been cooked up with central banks and the central banks have been extremely quiet about it all. Mm. Uh, Joseph, do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I think we should, the other chart on the right, it's also really interesting you can see that the Bank of Russia used to hold a lot of U.S. dollars, and suddenly in 2018, it just kind of totally got rid of a lot of it. This seems like be a significant diversification out of the dollar and into euros and other things. Um, I think, I mean, it, this is obviously something they were preparing for for some time, but this time around, not just the U.S. government froze their reserves, but the euro governments as, as well. So both their dollars and euros are frozen. 
I think one thing worth noting, and it's not on this chart, but they've been increasing their allocation to the Chinese RMB. So some of those, presumably, they can use. Uh, yep. this, that, we have so this chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, China, it's it increased from 13.8% uh, in 2020 to 14.2% of the, the reserve, but also a huge increase in gold. Yeah. yeah. I was going to comment on that. Um, so we've got really very diversified reserves here, haven't we? We've got um, China, so that's Renminbi. Um, we've got Japan, so quite a lot of yen assets here. Um, Germany, France, um, so that's that would be the ECB, um, Eurozone. Um, United States, so the Fed, potentially, depending on where those might be USTs. Um, and the United Kingdoms, and, and uh, you know, predominantly gold. Now, gold is kind of a universal foreign exchange reserve. You can sell it for any currency you like. It's a good reason for holding it. But it's also something that, um, unless you're kind of buying buying room in somebody else's vaults, um, you can <laughs> control yourself. And um, from what I've heard, it would seem that the gold is actually in Russia. So this is quite a considerable buffer against sanctions in theory. The bigger question here is whether the Bank of Russia would be able to sell down that gold if it's if the Russian banks are sanctioned, because um, central banks generally don't deal directly in markets. They deal through banks. Um, so the, Russia, the Bank of Russia would have to use uh, um, some kind of, of banking relationship to be able to sell its gold um, for dollars. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how that would work. They might be able to do some kind of barter relationship. I think Iran does that with oil, for example. Um, like you mentioned, having to sell that gold for any kind of dominant currency is going to be a big problem. Yeah. But, Joseph, I've but, got a... Sorry, Francis, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say they, they might be able to do so by, by a, um, via a third party. So they were selling it for yeah. Minbi and then exchange the Renminbi. Well, Francis, you tweeted out this awesome chart where the U.S. government is basically teaching everyone how you can maybe sidestep some of these social sanctions. We can show that. Yes. <laughs> uh, can, can you explain, Francis, what the me what the media has been telling, what the authorities have been telling the media, what people might have heard on, on a lot of uh, business channels, news channels, and then what, if you actually read the document from the Treasury, what the Treasury is actually teaching Russian banks to do? I think this is absolutely wonderful. Now, this is all to do with the carve-outs from the sanctions that we've been talking about. So this one particular, this particular particular little uh, frequently asked question, 978, this is from the US Treasury, um, which says, what happens if I want to make an energy transaction? How do I do? And the, and the banks that I'm dealing with is sanctioned. So it's provided a neat little explanation of how you can do it, com complete with flowcharts, showing you the kind of relationships you need to be able to um, do an energy transa transaction with a, with a sanctioned bank. You can see outlined in red, it says the target entity, that's the sanctioned bank. And you can see in here that we have US banks in here, which are the correspondent banks that Joe was talking about. Um, and they'll be the banks that have access to the Federal Reserve and are able to transmit dollars. So ordinarily, um, the sanctioned the, the Russian bank would have an account with the U.S. correspondent bank, and that's where the, where the, it would get its dollars from in in that transaction for on in an energy transaction. That's the route by which you would come. 
What the US Treasury has helpfully told the banks they can do is put in a third country intermediary bank. This has to be a non-US and non-sanctioned bank. Um, so, um, it, 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 which means they could, uh, and the US correspondent can send the funds via that third country intermediary bank to the sanctioned bank, and that would be perfectly okay. And that can work in both directions. So as long as you've got a third country, a non-US, non-sanctioned bank between you and your correspondent, between Spurbank and JP Morgan, you can they can um, transact energy transactions and the other um, excluded transactions. It looks so easy, right? <laughs> it just complicates things a bit more. But, you know, like I said, if you find, find yourself a nice Indian bank or something, we'll do it for you. But yeah, as I uh, Cypriot bank. Uh, so <laughs> it, this actually go, uh, ties in really well with something that uh, President Joe Biden said in his speech, as, as noted by Adam Tooze. He said, let's see if I can find this quote. He said, you know, in our sanctions package, we specifically designed to allow energy payments to continue. So the messaging has been quite clear that energy uh, uh, sanctions are off the table for now. And also, even if they did energy sanctions via SWIFT, Francis, based on what you said, that's just, you're basically taking away their email account. You're not actually taking away their payment uh, uh, rails. Um, and actually, and actually, the European Union is now saying, uh, from the latest that I've heard is reported in the FT today, that um, the SWIFT exclusion is not going to include Spurbank or Gazprom Bank. So wow. they're, not, they're not even losing their emails. Mm -hmm. And what about you know we've had a I, I know you know both of you have a huge expertise in monetary uh, matters you know, I know you, you people are you're not uh, oil traders however you know, you might have noticed that the price of oil has gone up a tremendous amount with Brent oil you know 105 dollars 107 dollars WTI at at 105 dollars WTI I mean that's American that shouldn't even be you know that much affected is this just speculation because it sounds like the fundamentals of oil flowing from Russia into the U S and the Western world is still intact. As a matter of fact, I believe um, uh, someone noted that on the day that President Biden gave his speech about Russian energy, $700 million of oil, of aluminum and coal and, and other minerals and materials uh, uh, of $700 million worth of that flowed from Russia to the EU, UK and the US. So uh, Francis and Joseph, is there a little bit of a disconnect between the narrative and the reality? I think there's some stockpiling going on myself. <laughs> I think there might be anticipating Russian retaliation. I think yeah. even though, as Francis mentioned, the sanctions, there are many ways around it. They're porous, but the market impact so far is very real, right? And, and Francis mentioned this earlier, and maybe that might be part of the point. But there is some possibility the Russians could simply cut off their energy exports and if that's the case then oil is going to go to 200 or above yeah yeah um so we ha we have a lot more to get to oh oh uh by the way i should say uh thank you everyone for watching live we have about 250 people watching that's nice uh if you have any questions please post them and i'll be sure to ask uh, joseph and francis by uh before before we end uh, I, I've got my my question is, if the fundamentals aren't that bad for Russian banks, how can you explain the absolute carnage you've seen in the Russian ruble 
as as well as in the Russian stock market. The R- Russian stock market has been decimated. You know, Sparebank is down ninety percent. Uh, how how do you explain? Um, you know, the as you write, uh, I'll I'll read you your own words, uh, Francis. That <laughs> um, let's see, uh, the noose around the neck of the of Russia's banking system is being tightened a little more. And you know, we actually we see that in spades. If you look at uh, the Russian uh, uh, debt markets, you'll see that yields on uh, Russian sovereign bonds have exploded higher. You know, uh, the thirty-year bond yield, uh, you know, close to ten percent on the twenty thirty-five bond. It's it's well higher. So people people have been just selling off a tremendous amount of Russian assets, and as such, the ruble, uh, you know, pretty much was was you know almost cut in half from you know about. It's about it's, it's less than one cent. The ruble is now less than one cent, as, as Joseph noted. Uh, so, how do you explain you know, the the horrible uh, financial pain that Russian markets have seen, as well as perhaps the glee with which Western politicians talk about it? Well, I think there are two things here. The first is kind of the title of the show, really, <laughs> forward guidance, that um, what central banks do ordinarily, and I know we're talking politicians here, but, you know, the distinction right now is extremely blurred. When they're trying to get markets to do something, is they tell them what they're going to do. So the Fed might say, we expect to do four interest rate hikes this year, and markets respond by um, pushing up yields. Yeah. Um and if, they, if the Fed gets lucky, if markets do this well enough, then the Fed might not have to do four interest rate hikes this year because the market would have tightened monetary policy enough for it all by itself. Um, and central banks do this quite a lot. And it would appear that um, politicians have rather learned from this playbook, either that or they've been kind of advised on it by central banks. Um, because I think there's a John lot Ellen of- is former central banker, right? Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, she is. It's also worth remembering that, that, that Mario Draghi is as well, and he is currently the uh, president of Italy, um, which has is having some say in this. Um, so, you know, there are some central central bankers and uh, former central bankers floating around, um, and 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 it's entirely possible that there have been consultations with central banks anyway um, behind the scenes because this does very much touch on what central banks do. You know, when we're dealing with central bank sanctions, particularly, we are dealing with monetary policy. And that is very much and that has consequences for financial stability. Anything you do to the banking sector has consequences for financial stability. And that is central banks remit. remit. So we are in the realms here of politicians really interfering in what is normally the province of central banks doing so for very good reasons. But it would, I would be quite surprised if central bank bankers hadn't had some hand in this. And that might explain why they haven't why Western central bankers haven't said very much. Um, They've kind of left it to the politicians. But um, I think we've got a lot of this kind of saying what we're going to do and waiting for markets to respond. And sure enough, markets have responded. So what have we announced so far? We've announced a bunch of sanctions that are really harsh. And I have to say they are. The US's sanctions particularly are the most severe sanctions I have ever seen against um, foreign central banks, ever. Um, the only time, the only other bank I've seen actually cut off from the US clearing system was a little Latvian bank called ABLV about four years ago. It it, it, it failed within a week. The ECB closed it down. Um, I, I mean, Spurbank and, and VTB are not going to be closed down. They're state owned. But it's definitely extremely painful to be cut off from the 
um, dollar clearing system. I mean, I don't think people should underestimate just how bad that, how how harsh that sanction is. And particularly coupled with similar moves from the UK, which has um, frozen um, Russian frozen the assets of VTB um, and uh, various other smaller banks. And and as that's London, that's actually fairly serious because <laughs> it's London, London grad, isn't it? You know, it's a pretty, <laughs> the world's home for Russian, Russian assets. This is quite serious. Um, you know, so we're not talking about mild sanctions here. We're talking about really quite harsh ones. We appear to have lost Francis, um, unfortunately. J Joseph, I'm going to turn it to yeah. you. And, and can you actually turn actually, your volume down a tad? Yeah, 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 please. I would just add to her a bit. So, okay, is the volume good? Can you hear? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Good, so good. yeah, so the U.S. takes these sanctions super, super seriously. So back when, uh, for example, the U.S. caught one of the European banks violating sanctions to a brand, they fined them for about a billion dollars. Now that's serious money. So all the banks they're deathly afraid of being in violation of these things. So once the uh, authorities have said that they're going to sanction someone everyone kind of runs away from them because they're afraid of getting caught up in this. And you can actually see this not just in banks, but you can see this informally around um, other businesses. For example, BP getting rid of all their Russian oil assets and other companies doing similar things. There's kind of a wholesale abandonment of any Russian assets. Mm, yeah, they don't well, have to, but they, they're, they're just doing it because I guess they want to be able to tell the public that they they are part of this movement but i guess also they probably expect to lose those assets anyway because if there really is some kind of economic cold war the russian government is going to confiscate all the assets held by foreigners so it might make sense to just renounce them now mm. for the central banks to renounce these uh, no, sanctions so all businesses not i'm just talking about oh, central yeah. banks. i'm talking about the businesses in general Ah, gotcha. We got a funny comment from from CG saying Francis got sanctioned. Uh, was her <laughs> account. Uh, well, I'd like to say, you know, I'm I'm work at the Treasury, and uh, there's actually an exemption for Francis, so she will be back. I think that was an internet issue. Uh, Joseph, so the tremendous devaluation of the ruble. What? How does that uh, force the, the central bank of Russia? Uh, what problems does it cause for the central bank central bank of Russia? And can you explain why the Central Bank of Russia decided to raise its deposit rate, I think from nine and a half or ten percent to twenty percent? And and also, can you speak to maybe you know I like to ask you questions about Joseph. Oh, Joseph, when you were at the Fed, what were you thinking when this happened? But I don't think that this has ever happened to the dollar for a long, long time, right? Because the, the dollar doesn't depreciate thirty percent overnight. Yeah, it doesn't depreciate thirty percent overnight. Sorry, Joseph, you got to turn it back up. I'm, I'm, I apologize. Stay with us, folks. Can we talk now? Yep. Yep. Now? yep. 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 So the Central Bank of Russia, like the ruble basically imploded, right? So the way that this works is that usually when people sell rubles, let's say sell them for dollars, the central bank has a lot of dollar reserves so they can buy the rubles and sell the dollars. So the central bank has this huge worship of foreign currency to be able to support the domestic currency. That's the whole purpose of it. Um, now that the Central Bank of Russia has been has its assets frozen, it's not able to support its domestic currency. And because it can't support it, when people sell, there's not a lot it can do. It can do. There's, not a lot, there's not any more, um, let's say, ammunition to support the ruble. And so it's collapsing. Uh, the standard playbook 
for a central bank when they have their currency collapse is to raise interest rates. For now, for example, when I look at 20% interest rates, I want to buy rubles. It's, it's 20%. That's that's pretty awesome, right? Um, so that's that's the whole playbook. Trying to get people to not get rid of the rubles by raising interest rate. Mm. And I, I sh- should say, Joseph, you, you say you want to own a ruble. Here we go. We okay, have no, Francis not, back. No, I'm not going to do that. Just, just for the sake of argument. Oh, Francis, you're back. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry yeah, yeah. about that. Um, I had a, a, a Wi-Fi glitch and I've had to switch to a different device. Sorry about that. Well, we are very glad that you are back, Francis. We were just talking about the Bank of Russia's decision to hike interest rates to 20%. What uh, problems were caused, as you see them, by the devaluation of the ruble? Why did they hike rates to 20%? And do you think it will be effective? Well, on this. Um, the Bank of Russia is required by law to defend the value of the ruble. I don't know how many people know that, but back in 2014, when they floated the ruble, when when the um, in the terms of trade shock, then with as an oil, as an oil producer, um, a lot of oil producers at the time were going through their reserves ever so fast, trying to prop up the value of their currencies as the oil price fell. Russia decided to float. And um, it's, it did so rather successfully and just used its reserves to smooth the descent of the ruble as it fell, um, tracking the oil price, really, as you would expect for an oil exporter. And some members of the Duma um, decided to launch legal action against Nabulina, the um, governor of the Bank of Russia, um, for treason. Um, and uh, Putin backed her up at the time. But it, it concentrated her mind rather a lot. And that was when she hiked interest rates to 17.5% then. And, and we, we, there was a lot of speculation at the time that it wasn't really justified economically and it was exceedingly damaged. But it was really her defence against the allegation of treason. Um, so it's entirely possible that she's pulling the same trick again because she can't. As it, that easily defend the ruble. This is a run on the ruble caused by the forward guidance, shall we call it, um, <laughs> from the West about um, what is actually, uh, arguably, you know, so use it's currency wars, isn't it? We're going to break the ruble by um, destroying the central bank's ability to defend it, um, which is what this kind of sanction against the central bank, if it worked, would do. Um, so she's responding by raising interest rates, I think, um, perhaps as a legitimate um, attempt to prop up the, ru- the ruble, but though I suspect the capital controls that they're also introducing at the same time are probably more effective. Um, but also, I think, to be seen to be doing um, something to, to, to defend the ruble. Why do you think that a devaluation of the ruble is seen as a greater threat than a recession because you're jacking up interest rates to 20% typically tightens monetary conditions considerably. So you can talk about a little bit about about the trade-offs, Francis. Well, I mean, from a purely macroeconomic point of view, um, the risk for if if a central bank really can't defend its currency at all, and it's facing all these um, attacks on on assets and everything else, there are two risks. The first is to run on the banks, and the second is hyperinflation. Um, So that's what they're defending against. 
and um, it, it, it jacking up interest rates to try and keep control of the currency, um, not only its external value, but also its internal value, its purchasing power, um, is a way of defending against that. And the price for that might well be a recession. It is easy to, easy to overshoot with interest rates. But the other part of this is is kind of how you maintain interest rates, really. And and again, if you if you destroy the ability of the central bank to conduct monetary policy, if you if you deny it access to markets, that kind of thing, then you also um, just prevent it from um, maintaining interest rates as well. Um, I mean, you showed us, Jack, the yields on on sovereign bonds at the moment, and you can see the short term sovereign bonds are higher than that. Yes, so that that would be an inverted yield curve because the sh the overnight deposit rate or the short term deposit rate is at twenty percent, whereas the thirty year rate or is is still lower than ten percent. What does an inverted That's yield curve mean to you? And and also maybe I'll throw this to Joseph. Uh, are you going to sort of an inverted yield curve normally sig is, signals you know a recession is looming, but these are so very special circumstances, right? Yeah, hugely. Actually, what it's signalling at the moment is an, is an, um, an increased um, likelihood of default in the short term. There's been some chatter in the markets about the possibility of sovereign default, um, because um, not on ruble-denominated debt, but on dollar-denominated debt, um, because uh, because of the sanctions, because the Bank of Russia will find it once the sanctions bite. And I don't just mean the sanction on the central bank itself, but also on the banking system um, will start to um, impact um, the central bank's ability to uh, the, the government's ability to to um, service its debt. That said, it does really have rather substantial reserves. So assuming it's actually able to get some dollars by some means, um, it would actually continue to be able to service it. So I, I personally don't think the risk is, is that high. And certainly if it was a serious risk, we'd be looking at much higher yields than this. Um, yeah, so. It's not so much that they don't have the money. Maybe they don't want to pay it. Because well, if, if you're going to this regime where you're decoupling, well, why am I going to pay all these foreigners? Yeah, there, a typical default for or for um, political reasons is yeah. not beyond the bounds of possibility, I would say. Mm. Joseph, sorry, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it seems like, for example, the, the Western powers are basically confiscating assets held by the Russian people, right? That's kind of what freezing the central bank is. These assets, the, the Russian central bank can't use them anymore. They're effectively taken. If the Russians wanted to retaliate, they could just stop paying their debts to the West. And that's one way of retaliation. Mm, mm, that, that makes sense. Uh, Joseph, so, uh, I want to go, go back to this chart, which uh, the, the chart on the left, which the different colors you know indicate the different composition of the assets held by the Russian central bank. And just let's just go through the colors, uh, securities. So let's, let's say they own mm -hmm. treasuries. They own a, gov a German government debt. Why can't they sell that? What, what, what is the mechanism by which by which yeah. they're they are prevented to sell that. for the Fed, for example, if you own treasuries, the way that this works is that all the book, all the record keeping for who owns treasuries is held at the Fed. So in modern times, when you buy a treasury, there is no certificate. All you have is an electronic record on the books of the Federal Reserve. But it's not even in your name. In order to be able to participate in this securities wire thing, you have to be a domestic bank or a foreign a US branch of a foreign bank then you can have your name in the Fed system. 
So if you're an investor and you bought a treasury, what happens is that your bank holds it in custody for you at the Federal Reserve. So the Federal, for example, if I bought a treasury in Bank of New York Mail and it's my custodian bank, then on the Fed's record book, it's going to say this treasury is held by Bank of New York Mellon and Bank of New York Mellon on its books, it's going to say that I own the treasury. So ultimately, everything is on the books of the Fed. If the Fed says this guy, you know, he's a bad guy, he can't own treasuries, then he's cut out of the system. So you can't sell those treasuries. They're dead. Wow. And that's surprising. You typically think of you know, money as the bank is, is, is money in the bank. And maybe if you're a criminal, then, then you get things. Yeah. But an entire, a central, a, a country's central bank being told that actually when you, you thought you had $600 billion, you don't actually. <laughs> that, that really is remarkable. I think that's the biggest, to me, that's the biggest thing that happened today. So we have conflicts in the world. They used to be kinetic. We had nuclear war. We don't do that anymore. Now our weapons are financial weapons. And what we just did here is the equivalent of a financial nuclear weapon. We basically confiscated Putin's money, like hundreds of billions of dollars of it, right? And that sends a signal throughout the world. Uh, I don't know what, Francis, what do you think about this? I mean, let's say you are another sovereign. Maybe you have trillions of dollars. Maybe you're not friends with everyone. How is that going to change how you manage your reserves? I actually think I agree with you. This is it's 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 a hugely important step sanctioning a central bank. The only one, to my knowledge, that's been sanctioned before was was Iran, um, and uh, that and that was the U.S. acting unilaterally as well. Whereas now we've got um, the Western powers acting collaboratively, collaboratively to to sanction a central bank and to well to freeze its assets. And as you say, that is freezing the assets that belong to the Russian people. Um, and, it, and what that's going to do, I think, is going to make everybody feel a lot less safe. The, the kind of turmoil we're seeing in the markets now, um, selling down the ruble, selling off Russian assets all over the place, it goes far wider than the sanction that's actually been sanctions that have actually been imposed so far there were the, the, because you know none of them none of them are actually really active yet and um, there's still a lot to sort out there's still the 30 day great 30 day lead in for the us sanctions there's still the negotiations with swift and they're still trying to work out if they even can freeze the bank of um russia's assets because they are the sovereign assets of the russian state and um as such normally mm-hmm. would uh, would be uh, would have sovereign immunity so there, there's potentially some legislation that's going to need to be passed to freeze these assets we don't know exactly how they're going to do it so it's back to that we've announced an intention and everybody's gone oh my goodness what does that mean so they've dumped the ruble and they, they're dumping russian assets all over the place things that are nothing to do really with the central bank but you know um the, the message, the signaling that it's sending really is that Russia is a pariah state and we don't want to have anything to do with it. And, for, oh, sorry, Joseph, go ahead. No, I, I think that's exactly right. This is something that is fundamentally changing the world. We are not ever, we're not able to just go back to normal after this. This is, uh, I think, this is some non discontinuity that's going to reverberate for the coming years. And Francis, you noted that you've been, you know, the the Russian central bank has been issuing a press release pretty much every hour. However, mm-hmm. Christine Lagarde has been silent. Jay Powell has been silent. 
why do you think that the Western central bankers have been silent? Do you think they will comply with the forward guidance that Western politicians have been promulgating, which is kind of, you know, it's, it's in their ballpark, you know? Totally. I think they will comply. Uh, as I said earlier in this, in this program, um, I think they have had a hand in it. I, I think they're in on it. And that's why they haven't issued any separate pronouncements about it, apart from Andrew Bailey's statement that he was just going to meet with the um, heads of the banks to discuss how they were going to implement the SWIFT plan. But everything else has been really quiet. Um, central banks, I mean, it's quite striking, particularly for the ECB, which has this sort of much vaunted treaty independence, you know, where no government is allowed to interfere with its operations in any way. It's not allowed to do anything that, it, you know, it, it, and all of a sudden here it is being completely silent about something which really touches on its independence. Um, I think part of the changing change that this, this um, package of sanctions creates in the world order is actually a, a, another nail in the coffin of the independence of central banks, really. Hmm. Joseph, I've got a question for you, which is, you know, there, there was a time perhaps two weeks ago when we were doing our, our dispatch and the bond, the, the Fed fund futures market was pricing in that the Fed could do a double hike um, uh, in the upcoming March FOMC meeting. But there was a time when it was actually the, the probability it was 90, 95%. Now, according to the Fed funds futures market, not only is a double rate hike off the table, but a no-hike situation is in play. As I, as I checked earlier this afternoon, something like a 5% chance that the Federal Reserve doesn't hike. Is that, is that something that you think is on the table or is that just a, you know, a, a kink no, I, in, I the, in the market? I think that understands what's happening. If you look at this through the Fed's perspective, the Fed is a dual mandate, right? Full employment, price stability. We're at full employment. The problem now is inflation. This Russian shock, it is hugely inflationary. You can just look at the oil price, but not just oil. You can look at the soft commodities as well. Russia is a huge producer in all sorts of commodities. So now maybe they're not going to export as much to the West. That means commodity prices are going higher. That means inflation is going to get worse. So if anything, I think this strengthens the resolve to hike rates. Now, the, there's still uncertainty here because there's a financial stability angle as well. There's a lot of volatility in the markets, but I... I would be surprised if they didn't at least hike 25 basis points. Actually, Nick from the Wall Street Journal has a story out today, basically reaffirming that the Fed is on their path to hike rates. Now, this is, in my view, kind of resembling what's happening in the 1970s. We're having a negative supply shock in a lot of commodities. And back then, the Fed hiked rates. I think we probably have to do the same. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, I want to now ask you another question. Let's go to... A, a question by DC analyst uh, on Twitter uh, who looks at spreads between SOFR and Euro dollar futures. And they note that the unsecured funding premium peaked at 25 basis points on Monday, and it's now back under 25 basis points. And that is a sign of good news. I'm going to zoom forward so we see this chart. Uh, what are we exactly looking at here? And, and what does it mean? So as we know, Bank of uh, the Russian central bank's assets got frozen. There's some speculation, for example, by by Zoltan at Credit Suisse, that a lot of that, a lot of those assets held by the Russian central bank, they were actually funding the dollar markets. Uh, for example, they could have been lent into an FX swap, 
or that maybe they could have just been deposits at a bank. Now, to the extent that those deposits gets frozen, potentially there could be some disruption in the dollar money markets. Someone somewhere might be losing funding. For example, let's say I'm the Russian central bank and I have $100 billion deposited at some big bank somewhere. When those funds get frozen and that big bank is forced to close the Russian central bank's account, that big bank might be losing $100 billion in funding and that might cause some stress in the markets because they're going to have to go into the markets and replenish that. But that looks like it's not the case. And I, I don't expect it to be the case either. If you look at the broader funding picture, the world is awash in dollars. There's 1.7 trillion of it packed in the RRP. The real pressure in dollar funding has to do with the Russian entities because suddenly whoever was lending to them is not going to lend to them anymore. This is max exodus out of Russia. However, that kind of stress is not going to show up in the funding system at all because the Russian banks got frozen out. They're not even able to come up, show up in the market and panic bid the LIBOR rates up. They, they, don't, they basically don't exist. Yeah, if I can jump in here, because I, I read Zoltan's piece and I mean, Zoltan is brilliant in so many ways, but I did, did disagree with him about this. Um, I, I've mentioned already about the lead time for the sanctions. And if you actually look at the lead time, for the um, for the U.S. sanctions, and it will be the same for for other for the US, European sanctions as well. Thirty days is significant because thirty days is the funding cycle for for banks. It, it's the um, you know the um, um, prepositioned liquidity. Um, they had they've essentially been given thirty days to unwind their positions. Um, that's quite a long time, really. Um, yeah, there might be things that they have fun have have problems finding alternative sources of funding for, but I would expect central banks to be standing ready to cover that really. And again, they've had time to to sort this out, to apply whatever thumb screws they need to to the banks to make them up their, you know, prepositions from collateral or whatever they need to do, and to put in place plans for whatever kind of swaps and things they need to put in place to, and to make sure that 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 markets can be kept liquid in all in all the major currencies i don't see why there should be need to be any major disruption to this market what zoltan seemed to be game gaming was a situation where a sanction was suddenly imposed out of the blue like tomorrow that that they were simply just cut off um, immediately, but that's not what's going to happen because apart from the else, central banks have got a financial stability mandate and I have no doubt they were in on these sanctions. And one of the things that, that, that governments would have been very aware of in this discussion was the risk to financial, financial stability. They're not going to play fast and loose with it. Uh, I've, I've got a, a few things. I'm from Zoltan uh, Posar, uh, your legendary money market strategist at mm -hmm. Credit Suisse. Um, so that thesis that you laid out, which, which is, is, is a most recent piece, well, first of all, he starts off by with a comparison to Lehman Brothers, uh, saying how people thought they could hedge this $200 billion balance sheet, but actually the money was just gone and you, you can't hedge something that disappears. And he writes that exclusions from SWIFT will lead to missed payments and giant overdrafts, similar to the missed payments and giant overdrafts that we saw in March, 2020. Um, yeah, so that, that's Zoltan's view. Sorry, Joseph, you, you were gonna say something? Uh, I was just going to follow up on Francis's point that I, Francis mentioned this earlier as well. There's an exclusion for derivatives from the yeah. sanctions. So a lot of these, for example, FX swaps, for example, wouldn't really be effective because they're derivatives as well. And 30 days is a long time to prepare for this. Again, 
it's probably, as Francis mentioned, more of a forward guidance issue rather than something that's really going to hit the economy right away. Uh, Francis, I've got a question, which I think I found the text you were referring to, which is from the uh, sanctions from the Treasury, that the prohibitions of the Russia-related CAPTA directive take effect at 12.01 Eastern Time on March 26, 2020, and that U.S. financial institutions must have closed any correspondent or payable through account maintained for Sparebank, all other entities listed uh, in Annex 1. Uh, in other words, uh, financial institutions may not process transactions involving those institutions and must reject such transactions starting on March 26, okay. 2022. So this is not in effect now. The, the sanctions on Sparebank, on, on all the banks? I mean, I thought that this these, these sanctions, so you're saying the sanctions are not live yet. Yeah, the only sanction I know of that's live at the moment is actually the one applied by the United Kingdom on BTB, which um, sanctioned it with immediate effect. Um, I'm not aware of any other sanction that's been put in place immediately. Wow, so all of this panic literally has just been forward guidance. It's just it's been expectations. It's all smoke. It's all it's all smoke and mirrors. That's what you <laughs> that's get when central saying. banks become uh, politicians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is what I was saying about you know the the, the I mean what what price independence of central banks anymore when a central when central banks the 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 tools of central banks like this, which is because it's central banks that have to implement this really. Um, it can suddenly become weapons of war. Mm. Uh, Francis, uh, I've got a question for you uh, from Andy Wang on Twitter, who says, is there a way for the Russian central bank to coordinate with Chinese central bank to sell its dollar denominated assets? That's the first question. And then second, uh, so how about you guys do the first question? Okay, well, th this kind of brings us back to, to Swift again, doesn't it really? <laughs> <laughs> and and also our uh, our guidance from U.S. Treasury on how you can avoid sanctions. <laughs> um, if I take SWIFT first, um, obviously this is a case where Russia and China might co might kind of combine forces to bypass SWIFT uh, using their own networks. Um, and the second thing is um, with the U.S. sanctions that um, um, China. Um, and Chinese banks may or may not be sanctioned, and um, and if they're not, then that's a route by which they could avoid the U.S. sanctions. But with the caveat, it's only for certain types of transactions. So I'm not sure they could evade. They could sell the USD asset that way. They might be able to sell a euro one though, um, and then kind of lean on a euro <laughs> yeah, lean, lean on a european bank to to sell it for usd i suppose mm. joseph you have any thoughts on that no i agree i agree i think there are ways around this like like mm. francis smith talking about this is porous mm. all right uh, uh two housekeeping items um someone asks when is jeff snyder coming on that will be uh the following week uh march 8th joseph and i will, will talk to jeff snyder someone else uh and the second thing is someone wants to know can't they just route payments through the bis bank of international settlements to evade fed sanctions and let me actually oh francis you you, what you what? <laughs> joe and i both shook our heads on that one didn't we? <laughs> That's, yeah. yes no. it, it's no. not possible to do that <laughs> it's not possible and i also I, I got a quote from the bis which is that our policy is that the institution does not acknowledge or discussing discuss banking relationships. The BIS will follow sanctions as applicable. So pretty much the ultimate punt. Mm. 
I mean, the BIS isn't going to step, step out of line anyway. Um, but in the end, all dollar transactions go through the Fed anyway. And BIS does not handle dollar transactions. No, BIS will have to deposit it at the Fed as well. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Joseph, we've got a question from Alexander. He says, what's your opinion about yields on treasuries in the past couple of days, which, by the way, have gone down, uh, as well as quantitative tightening and Fed? I think not just treasury yields, but yields throughout the world have basically crushed lower. It sounds like there's tremendous fear in the market and they should be afraid. We're heading into a world where, you know, we might escalate into more armed conflict, wider conflict. So it makes sense for, for me to see financial market participants basically panic into safe assets. I think this complicates everything for the Fed. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we'll know until we get more clarity on what's happening over there. Mm. And uh, Francis, how likely do you think that this could cause funding stress? I know earlier we talked about the potential of the Fed having to extend dollar swap lines to other central banks. In what scenario would the Fed have to do that? Why would why would the system become under stress? Well, I, I think it it's one of these kind of flow things about what we're doing is disrupting the flows of funds um, because we're cutting certain banks out of the banking network. And so you're going to get bottlenecks in the system and um, funding strains in different parts of it. And central banks have to intervene to smooth those out. Now, so you could end up, say, in a euro dollar situation where, where it's actually Europeans, European banks that need dollars. And you will need the Fed swap line with the ECB to ease that. Right. So I envisage that we will need central line swap, central bank swap lines again, but um, obviously not involving the central bank of Russia. <laughs> so, so who would the counterparties be, Francis, just to be clear, because in March of 2020, it was other central central banks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always other central banks, okay. um, because then the, the in, in a way if you think about it, if, if the Fed's got swap lines, dollar swap lines with with the Bank of England, with the ECB, then it's really allowing the Bank of England and the ECB to act like outposts of the Fed, additional Federal Reserve banks, if you like, um, for their own for their own market, for the Europe, for their own markets. Um, uh, it, that's really what what swap lines do. Um it, 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 in a way, it, it increases the reach of the dollar, but it just it, it just it, it eases the the bottlenecks that can occur in, in in funding markets in different currencies, if central banks can can borrow each other's currencies. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll make it a bit more concrete. Just following up with Francis's example, let's say the Russian central bank was lending hundred billion dollars to a pension fund in Japan. So the Japan Japanese pension fund was borrowing from the Bank of Russia through the FX swaps and then buying, let's say, agency MBS. If the Central Bank of Russia suddenly had its dollars frozen, then what's going to happen with that pension fund, right? It needs to borrow dollars to buy to buy the uh, the agency MBS assets on its balance sheet. So that whole $100 billion hole has to be covered somehow. If there's dislocations, ultimately what the pension fund can do is to borrow from a Japanese bank, who in turn will borrow from the BOJ, who in turn would tap the Fed's epic swap lines. So the Fed ultimately could make up that difference if there's a significant disallocation. And, and what sort of signs of stress in the system would we see before? Because the Fed, it doesn't just extend swap lines willy-nilly, right? There has to be a, a sort of a, a cry of distress from the financial markets. Would it be 
credit spreads blowing out? Would it be emerging market currencies selling off, stock market crash? So the, the measurement for stress in the FX swap market, if the FX swap basis, which is basically the extra amount of money someone would have to pay to borrow in a currency, that basis is usually like a fraction of a percent. During times of stress, it goes to several percent. So that's basically the gold standard. To be clear, I don't expect anything like that to happen, but that's what the Fed would be watching. And also, actually, the Fed has standing swap lines with its good friends. The uh, the temporary swap lines are for the people who are less good friends. Yeah, so I'm now cited the ECB and the ECB and the and the Bank of England, and and Joe's mentioned the Bank of Japan, but all of those have standing swap lines. Yeah, <laughs> have done since 2014. Uh, well, you both have been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, my final question is for you, Francis, which is we pretty much described what has happened over the past week, two weeks. What do you envision over the next month? What are the different scenarios that are running through your head? How drastic could this, the sanctions be ratcheted up? You know, I've heard some people describe what the U.S. has done on a sanctions level as a five or a six out of ten. What would a ten look like? Oh, well, there are things they could do. I mean, getting rid of the carve-outs. Um, I think getting rid of the financial stability ones would be problematic. And, and so actually would bringing forward the, the implementation of the sanctions because the financial stability risks. But if, for example, they decided, no, we're not going to wait until March 26th, then they're basically triggering, triggering, triggering a fan, financial crisis in order to hurt Russia. I'm not quite sure, you know, the, the damage to the West would be quite considerable. Another possibility, um, which is perhaps more likely, would be reconsidering the, the energy carve out. Um, quite a lot of people have been calling for that um, because it really is, is just protecting um, consumers and businesses in the West. Um, and it does, and it does mean that uh, as long as we're doing that, and the oil price continues to go up, and the gas prices hit the head for the moon, um, we are funding President Putin's war effort by delivering him dollars and euros. So there, there's going to be pressure for that to be reconsidered. Um, I, and I personally think that should be reconsidered. Um, I think the West should be looking at the price, looking again at the prices it's paying for all this stuff. Um, and thinking hard about whether it really should be doing this. Um, I, I accept the point about the pain for households and businesses, but, but um, governments are perfectly capable of, of supporting households and businesses, and they have demonstrated that already in the last two years. So I don't think they've got too many excuses, actually. Um, so that's another thing that could be done. Um, it, beyond that, it's, it's hard to say because, I mean, this is already so drastic. It's already going far beyond anything we've ever done before. So, um, and I think after that, you know, people are talking about moving on to economic sanctions now, really. Um, you know, looking at, at, at um, you know, I don't know, pressure on, on Russia's exports and things like that. Um, and the, the European Union is already doing some things along those lines. We'll have to see what they do next. Mm. Well, uh, it's been fantastic um, having getting you uh, to describe what SWIFT actually is, uh, you know, what uh, the, the plumbing of the financial system um, as regards to the sanctions. So thank you, uh, Francis. People should definitely um, follow you on Twitter at Francis underscore uh, Coppola. And, and your writings can be found at CoppolaComment.com. As loyal viewers know, Joseph Wang's uh, Twitter handle is at FedGuy12. His writings can be found at, at FedGuy, uh, excuse me, FedGuy.com. Uh, Joseph, your book, uh, Central Banking 101, yes. of course, loyal. And Francis, very, Francis has very a book familiar. as well. Francis, oh, yeah. Up. yeah, Francis, what's your book? 
my book is the case for people's quantitative easing. It's, it's kind of a book about QE, really. <laughs> so here we go. And, and it has yeah, a yeah, hold it up, hold it up a little, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. Apocalypse now on the cover, obviously. Oh, wow. Wow. I like it. Um, well, thank you both so much. Uh, Joseph and I, next week, we will be talking to uh, uh, Jeff Snyder. So say that's on March 8th. I'll be speaking to geopolit geopolitical analyst uh, Jacob Shapiro on Thursday, Thursday, uh, March 3rd. Thank you so much for everyone for watching and uh, please subscribe to the channel so you can uh, stay tuned for upcoming videos. Uh, thanks so much. Bye everyone. Bye.